This week's Listen In Podcast is brought to you by The Listen In Podcast. That's right, we are sponsoring ourselves right now. Please, if you like the show, go on to iTunes, subscribe to us, leave us a review. It is immensely helpful. Also, you can follow us on SoundCloud and Stitcher. So please give us a give us a follow, support any way you can. Let's go. Welcome to another episode of the Listen In Podcast. We are on episode 24, Jake. 24. 24, Jack Bauer's in the cut. He's, well, he's coming in later, um, so he told me, um, and he's going to be interviewed for the for the episode. My voice just cracked. I'm nervous to meet Jack Bauer. I don't is know this Jack you. Bauer or this is Kiefer Sutherland? My impression was that this is this is the real world Jack Bauer coming into the, to the like, studio. So he's in character is what you're telling me. I'm saying that Jack Bauer is... What are you saying? I'm saying Kiefer Sutherland is coming here, but he's going to be in character. I, well, you're, you're way over my head right now. Let's move into the episode so that when, when Jack <laughs> okay, gets here, okay. we've already made some progress. He's on a tight schedule, Sean. Sounds good. Uh, so we've had a lot of episodes the past few weeks that dealt with some weighty and heady topics. We talked about Prince's death, Beyonce's surprise new album... Uh, the new Radiohead album. We did like an hour and a half on Drake. Yeah. So we've we've had some heavy episodes. Not lately. only heavy, Sean, but long. We've had a couple very long back to back hour and a half episodes of full album length. You know, breakdowns track by tracks. Right. Um, and so this week we wanted to keep it a little more light. Yeah, keep wanted it a little more light. Bounce around a bit. A lot of great albums have come out in the past couple weeks. May is shaping up to be the strongest month of the year so far. So we've had, a good month. we've had a lot of good albums come out, and we have a lot more coming. So what we wanted to do on this episode is kind of take a step back, look at where we're at so far with a few new releases, including Modern Baseball, James Blake, Anthony, Kay Trinata, Death Grips, Chance Titty the Rappers. Sex. Yeah, a lot of good stuff to talk about today. Um, so, but first, Jake... You have a little historical context for us. Yeah, I saw this uh, on Twitter yesterday. I thought it was pretty interesting. So yesterday was May 16th, which I actually didn't know this, but it turns out that both the Beach Boys album Pet Sounds and Bob Dylan's album Blonde on Blonde, both considered classics, both came out in 1966. They actually both came out on May 16th of that year. Um which was making me think about what are some of the strongest years in music. And I think that we should have this be a full podcast. But 1966 is a pretty damn good one. Revolver came out August 5th, 1966 by the Beatles. Yeah, 66 is a strong year. Let me ask you this. Will history look back on this past Friday with Modern Baseball and Chance the Rapper coming out as our... Pet sounds. <laughs> I can't even say that with a straight face. It's not going to happen. Well, you never know. You never know. Probably not. Yeah. I mean, I don't think these are uh, moving music <laughs> forward in quite the same way. No. But then again, maybe people didn't think that then of pet sounds and and uh, of blonde on blonde. But an interesting historical uh, tidbit. Yeah, both. We're talking about best years of music. I agree. This should be a full podcast. Sixty six is up there. I think sixty nine. Yep. Could be up there. 79. With like, 79 as well. But there's a ton. The London Calling, Joy Departed. Not Joy Departed. That's a sorority noise <laughs> album. What's that album Big called? Shout. By, by, Joy uh, Division. Joy Division. Un- Unknown Pleasures. Came I, I, out. It's the same letters. Yep. But you know, 65 was a strong year too, Sean. That's right. Yeah, you had... Uh, Rubber Soul and Help by the Beatles. That's right. Bring It All Back Home. And 
um, Highway 61 Revisited. How about Dylan coming out with two of the best albums of all time in the same year? That's Dylan for you. Look I at mean, that output. That's insane. It is. I mean, if you look at 1965 through 1966, all in that span, and this is excluding some other really good albums, but just in terms of like legacy, all-time, top ten list, all the lists you'll ever see, these are on there. Yep. Between 65 and 66, you have Rubber Soul, you have Help, which is usually later on lists, you have Revolver by the Beatles, and then by Dylan, you have Blonde on Blonde in 66, Bring It All Back Home, Highway 61 revisited both in 65, and then you have Pet Sounds in 66, A Murderer's that, Row. That is A Murderer's Row. A powerful couple years. So... One that's a little more recent and a little more morbid, actually, is when you talk about 9-11. Yeah. There's, not only was that, like, a big day in music, you had, like, I think The Blueprint by Jay-Z come out that day. And um, it was uh, a new Bob Dylan. Was it Time Out of Mind by I think Bob so. Dylan? And it was, well, had, it was a Tuesday, so it was a release day for music. Yeah, that's right. And then you had, yeah, I missed the Tuesday release date, by the way. I don't like, I don't like that it moved to Friday. See, I feel like I never got so entrenched in it. I did. I was yeah. like, ooh, Tuesday. It was perfect, because, like... You'd have it through the week. You'd have it through the week, Monday... It gave you something to look forward to. You're like, yes, I get new albums tomorrow. Well, I like listening through the week. I, I do less listening on the weekends than I yeah. do during the week. It feels like on Friday when a bunch of stuff comes out, there's so much pressure you're, to like fit it in. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, it's the weekend. I'm going to be busy. It feel, I don't know. I like Tuesday better. Right. Well, and uh, September 11th, 2001 was a Tuesday show. Yeah. And on that day, some uh, several albums were released. Like, yeah, The Blueprint you mentioned so, and others. Uh you know what would be a fun, not a well, an interesting conversation. Somber would actually be music influenced by nine eleven and music that like had some kind of storyline caught up in nine eleven. Yeah, uh, we were talking last week about the disintegration loops, um, tapes and, or loops, loops, um, album. Uh, it's in a an ambient electronic masterpiece, really. Um, and that was recorded around the same time that, that 9-11 happened. We could talk about Yankee Hotel Foxtrot by Wilco. Kid A. Kid A. So have you heard that Chuck Klosterman theory about no. how Kid A like, predicted 9-11? Well, it came 9/11? out in 2000, yeah, so maybe. I was reading it. I was reading an article about it yesterday. Is it in one of his books? It is. It's in... Um, is it in Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Pops? No, it's in... One of those books, probably. Dying to Live or something like that. Okay. Yeah, it's in one of those books. But he basically says that Kid A is, it like breaks down what happens during 9-11. So you start out with everything in its right place. And his argument is like, that's the day everyone woke up. They thought it was going to be a normal day. Nice sunshiny day. And then when, by the time like National Anthem kicks in and like... Yeah, national. How to disappear completely? Yeah, and then he was saying tree fingers is just like this is people watching oh, the man. towers fall, and like what else could even be said during this time besides this? What I'm interested melodic droning kind. What of, I'm interested so. in is like figuring out at what point of the album is it all done? Like, did the attacks happen? And like we have now post uh we jump into the post 9-11 world is there a song where it you is. said like that's Klosterman argued it was the song Kid A into um National Anthem National Anthem I think he said National Anthem specifically was like when both planes hit wow so you get the start where you're like this is different this is weird like this has a completely different feel than the first two a groovy bass line 
and then he says around like three minutes and twenty four seconds, where all that like dissonance comes in. Yeah, the horns and stuff. He says that's plane number two hitting. Wow. And then you go into how to disappear completely after that, where people are like this isn't happening. Oh. And then you go into tree fingers. And where the towers disappeared completely. Yeah. So we got a couple podcasts. Yeah. So we got the Radiohead slash Wilco slash. Just 9-11 influenced music. 9-11 influenced music. Then we have the like best years in music. Um, one that came up for me <coughs> that I was thinking about is like 1959 in jazz. I don't know if you've seen this list online, Sean. There's a, uh, it's called the Jazz 100. It's like the 100 best jazz albums of all time. It's this website I reference all the time. 1959 was huge, arguably bigger in jazz than like 66 or 65 was for rock. That year, um, Kind of Blue by Miles Davis came out, The Shape of Jazz to Come by Ornette Coleman, uh, Mingus Ah Um by Charles Mingus, Time Out by Dave Brubeck, um, Giant Steps by Coltrane. Hmm. The only thing that could have made it better is if uh, A Love Supreme came out, but that was 66. But that... Right. So anyways... That is... Yeah, that's a big year for that. I think you could also make a comparison to like... 77 through 79 in punk one, mm-hmm. like you could pick probably punk any, slash post punk yeah you could probably pick any one of those years yeah. and it'd be 79 would probably be the year yeah, the, yeah. these are both the, these are fuller discussions but these are just yeah. a couple tidbits both that um, were spawned from hearing that bit of news about Blonde on Blonde and, and Pet Sounds yeah really cool really cool so we wanted to jump into some discussions about new albums right now and the first one is Modern Baseball Holy Ghost. So this has been an album that we have been talking about and really excited for for the Hyper. entire year. Yeah. If you guys remember on our most anticipated albums podcast that we did, this one I think was number one for both of us in terms of anticipation. So with any highly anticipated release, I think what ends up happening is it almost can never live up to your expectations. And I think this ended up happening with us unfairly so. So when we talk about our our initial thoughts, I think both of us were a little bit down on it. What what do you think? Well, I think I was, and it was just because um, there were a couple f- uh, factors. One major factor, which you've probably read about, or you probably know if you've listened to the record or if you're a modern baseball fan, is that the album is split into two sides. Um, the the first half is all written and sung by Jake Ewald, one of the two major songwriters. The second half is all by Brendan Lukens, um, which is different from Modern Baseball. So because I always liked what, what Modern Baseball did, where they had you had the two different songwriters and they it seemed like they were bouncing off each other in this like sort of frenetic, fun punk pop punk sound. Um, so that was gone on the album. The other thing was the second half, um, Bren's songs. Uh, when I first heard it, seemed very brief. Yeah. Like, especially like three or four of them seemed really, really short because they are. They're like a minute and a half. And I think it took me a few listens to really appreciate those songs, which I now really like. All yeah. of them. So I had the same thoughts as you, where I was disappointed about how they split it up into Jake's half and Brent's half. They so, did a speaker box love below thing. Yeah, an outcast, big boy Andre 3000 kind of thing. They even said that in an interview. They did. Yeah. And. When that news came out, that was all part of the kind of the press leading up to the release of this album. When they were saying that, I was a little disappointed. I was too. I, in my head, I was thinking, this could be cool, and I kept an open mind. But deep down, I was thinking, I'm going to miss them playing off of each other and switching tracks back and forth. When you listen to You're Gonna Miss It All... Their previous release. Their, their second album. It's so great to go from fine great to, you know, Jake's songs and back again. And they complement each other so well. Broken Cash Machine. That's right. That's the second one. 
they complement each other really, really well. And at first, I thought yeah, we're missing out on that on, on on this album. Well, and another thing that I thought immediately when I heard that was, to me, that sounded like some Beatles White Album shit, like where every member has to do their own thing, and and you hope that there's not some disharmony amongst members of the group. Or, or something like that. It seems, I guess what I'm saying is it seems like a very mature band thing to do. This seems like something a band does a few albums down the line when they kind of hate each other. This seems like a band that's still really, really, they all like love each other. They, they do. They're they a very say, lovey group. And they say that all the time in interviews. Yeah. They talk about how they're like great friends yeah. and they're a family and all this stuff. They seem too young and fun to be doing this move. However, I think that they legitimately just thought that this would be cool yeah. and just went for it. Also, the more that I listen to it, the more that I'm becoming okay with this choice because Jake's songs are all very... They have a certain tone about them. They They're do. a lot more they honestly, structured. They sound like pretty much straight-ahead rock songs more than they sound like punk songs. Singer-songwriter rock songs. They really, really do. It Actually, his side sounds pretty different from, it, in it my does. opinion, what it modern does. baseball usually sounds and like. And then, like you said, you get Bren's side, which is a lot more aggressive. He said himself, he's like, you get a lot of thrash kind of guitar stuff in there. Yeah. It is a little bit angry, <laughs> short, brief. So I think if, as much as I would have liked them to combine... I think it actually ends up making a lot of sense that they have two two sides unto themselves because if you were to mix these songs together, I think just the 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 feeling and overall vibe of each would really clash with each other in a way that maybe wouldn't complement like their other albums did. Yeah, and I have to be honest, I feel like I was doing that thing I don't like when people do, which is they're uh, presupposing something they think about a band upon that band and like judging an album based on something that I wanted, which was that I liked the give and take. Um, I often compare it to Mark Hoppus, Tom DeLonge from Blink-182. Different songwriters, different voices. I love it. sort of gives it this fun feel. But in truth, the two sides of this album are sonically very, very different, and it might be kind of jarring to hear these songs interspersed. I, What you have here is actually kind of like two mini concept EPs on on opposite sides of a record um, because you have Jake's which is he wrote it about his grandfather who died um, and that permeates sort of the whole side of the album and then Bren's side is about uh, his I think or mostly about I don't want to say every song is about I don't know I mean but it, it, what the press leading up to it was that it's about his struggles with like addiction and mental illness and going to rehab and uh, and just trying to get better and, mm -hmm. and and on some of those songs, like those themes come through pretty heavily. They do. And I think one of the themes or threads that is there throughout both of their sides is this idea of missing home or missing the people back home when they're on tour and stuff. Because Jake in the song Mass yeah. is talking about, like, I wish that I wasn't playing a show in Nebraska or Austin, Texas, asking the kids what they ate for breakfast. And then he's talking about, you know, somebody back in Massachusetts. And then on Bren's side, you get him talking about why does it take 2,000 miles for me to say I love you. Yeah. So I think that's where they complement each other on both those sides. But you're right. Other than that, it's very different feels. Well, what happened to me with, with Bren's side was that those songs, so you start in with Coding These to Lucans, then you get Breathing in Stereo, and then is it Apple Cider after that? Apple yes. Cider, I don't mind. Um, and then What If. Yep. So those are four of the first five <coughs> songs. 
all of them are two minutes or shorter. I mean, what if is like two minutes and one second, but they're they're for all intents and purposes two minutes or shorter. Um, and so what happens is, at least on my first several listens, Jake's side isn't long by any standard, but it's longer and it's longer by modern baseball standards. There's at least three songs that are like three and a half minutes or more, um, and then you get to Brent's side, and it it feels like it's over in a flash. It's taken me until some of these most recent listens to really appreciate what he's doing on those songs. I think these are actually some of his best written songs, maybe ever. I would agree. He's doing some really interesting stuff and on at, his and side. I, and at first, I was thinking, these sound like sketches of songs or good ideas for songs. Because what happens is, he has this really aggressive start with those thrashing guitars that we talked about. And you can't hear his vocals as well as you have on past records. Which I think for a lot of modern baseball fans, the relatable lyrics and like the funny stories and people that they're talking about are one of the most relatable things. You don't get that immediately. It takes a lot of listens to really understand what he's saying. So you go through about half the song and it's loud guitars, can't really hear the vocals, and then you hit these great melodies to end the song, and then it's done all of a sudden. And I was thinking, I want more of that. Like, give me more. That's why... At first, I was a little disappointed, but I am 100% with you now where I'm loving, absolutely loving what he's doing on this side. Yeah, I've done a turn, and I think that um, what I didn't, I couldn't tell at first, I was like, are these songs just not fleshed out, or was what he's doing kind of genius? I couldn't tell, and it's that hard thing, we talked about it a little bit last week with the Radiohead podcast, where... On your first several listens, especially when you're doing what we're trying to do, which is, like, analyze it to a point where it kind of ruins enjoyment, it's hard to know on your first few listens what's genius, what's bullshit. And because that's all subjective, there's no rules about any of that. So when I was listening, I was like, I can't tell if I like this, if I love this, or if I'm kind of not liking it. But more listens have revealed, I think, what he's doing stylistically on his side with these short songs that actually progress a lot. Like, uh, they all have distinct parts to them. All in under two minutes. And it's it's really impressive what he did with that. It is. And another reason they're short is they're fast. Yeah. They're aggressive. They're yeah. quick. Um, and then one of the other things that I realize happening to me is if there's a band I really, really like and there's an album I'm really looking forward to, I almost won't let myself dislike it. It's almost like a Stockholm Syndrome where you listen to the album so much you start to love it no matter what. And... I will say for myself, this has happened to me many times in the past, in particular this year. I think it happened with Frightened Rabbit, their new album. I love Frightened Rabbit. That album that came out, um, Painting of a Panic Attack, didn't get great reviews. in March. Yeah, came out in March. Didn't get great reviews. Didn't get a lot of fanfare. Yeah. And what I always said, I was like, if you like modern bass, uh, if you like Frightened Rabbit, you're going to like this Frightened Rabbit album. I love that album. It's actually probably like a top five of the year for me right now. Wow. No one else is going to have that close on their list. Just because I spent so much time with it and still do, I've just grown to enjoy it and love it. I also love that band. I This record by Modern Baseball, though, has actually gotten great reviews. Very well reviewed. Yeah. Um, My- and I've spe- spent so much time with it that no matter what, I've just come to love it like really really love it yeah it has it's what's weird is that i didn't expect a modern baseball album to be a grower and it is it's a a grower big time and especially if you are um a modern baseball fan and you've come to expect 
the stuff they're doing on You're Gonna Miss It All. I don't even think it really sounds that much like what they did on the Perfect Cast EP. No, and we were talking about this the other day. The Perfect Cast EP almost sounds like a different band entirely. It does, and it's actually one of my favorite eras of their music. It's so interesting. It's really, and it'll be interesting to look back on when like we're looking at them as a band historically because it's this album where they kind of had these sounds that they didn't really explore before. I mean, it's definitely all within the confines of a rock band. Um, but to me, the songwriting on that album, on that EP is like huge. It's these really like sort of big, to me, anthemic sort of songs. And if anything, they went a little minimalist on this, on Holy Ghost. Yeah. Well, well, Jake's side did. Jake's, Brent yeah. Did. Yeah. So that album, the songs like Infinity Exposed, we were listening the other yeah. day and we were saying this doesn't sound like anything modern baseball's done. And it's really interesting because that's how we got into this band. Like yeah. we, had, we had heard Your Graduation and a couple other songs here and there, Find Great. Find Great, yeah. But I remember in December we got so into that EP, and that's actually what made us go back and listen to their other stuff. So that was our first experience with them. Well, this it, al- that EP is an example of it. Uh, we talk a lot about albums that you remember as a time and place album. Yeah. I very distinctly remember running to that album, like in the fall, I thought. Um, or at least You'd the, gotten into it a little sooner than oh, I did. Oh, okay, cooler weather. And I remember just loving it because I... Like, it was perfect for, like, a 15-minute, like, a quick run somewhere. Um, you could listen twice if you did, like, if you ran three miles or something. But it's, yeah. and like, it, I'll always remember, like, the autumn. And I feel like the music on that EP fit it perfectly. But I was surprised the this album, they both go in sort of different routes. I wouldn't say the Jake songs on, perf, on Perfect Cast sound like what he's doing here. Not at all. And I wouldn't say that the Brendan songs sound nope. like what he's doing on Holy Ghost. Nope. So it's, it's really interesting that it doesn't really sound like you're going to miss it all. It doesn't really sound like the perfect cast EP, which I expected to be more of a precursor to what we got. I did too. Let me ask you this. If you are a new modern baseball fan, actually, so this happens a lot. A record like this gets released. It gets great reviews. People say, I'm going to go check that out. For example, I was reading a lot of the reviews. I read it on Spin, AV Club, Pitchfork, all of them. They all gave good reviews. In the reviews that had comment sections in it, AV Club in particular I'm thinking about, there were a lot of people who were saying things like, oh, I've never heard of this band, but I'll definitely check them out now. Do you think that this is a good introduction to the band? Because that's good. this is going to be a lot of people's first yeah. t- time listening to them. What's interesting is that it almost doesn't matter if it's a good introduction. For a lot of people, this is like what modern baseball is now, which is so interesting. It's like th- this has happened to me with bands. Yeah. Like I'll hear about a band through Pitchfork. I'll hear about a band through just Metacritic. It might be their third, fourth record. It might be a stylistic departure for them. But to me, that's what that band is. Right. And that's what's so interesting about this record is like people are not going to think about you're going to miss it all. No. There's going to be this whole new, probably bigger generation of fans yeah, that will so think about them as like this. This this album. And you know what's weird? I, I'm going back now, and I was listening to "You're Gonna Miss It All," and I couldn't help but thinking that this it's a rock band. It's the same people singing and writing the songs. It feels very different, though. Yeah. I almost have to be in two separate moods to listen to these albums. Like I've been in a very Holy Ghost kick lately. Yeah. And I haven't really wanted to go back and listen to the early albums just because they feel so tonally different. Yeah, that's a really interesting point is that they, they serve different purposes. Yeah. They, they, they function as different sort of mood pieces. Um, it, it's really interesting. And I think that Modern Baseball did an interesting thing with this album where they were, they're a punk band 
in so much as they they have sort of the trappings of a punk band. They have fast guitars. They're not a punk band in terms of like the way they do press. They're not a punk band in terms of the way they they like promote their or the way they they, they like view themselves because they did a ton of press leading up to this. They filmed a mini documentary uh, telling the stories about. Uh, what Jake's story was for the Holy Ghost side, and what Bren's side uh, story was for the for his side of the album, um, and they you know they did a lot of sort of grandiose things that you don't think of as like underground emo pop punk type things. Um, so to a lot of people, modern baseball might just seem like a rock band. They might just that might be the take a lot of people get. And I think one of the things that they do really well is they make an effort to connect with their fans a lot, to show themselves a lot and have their fans get to know them as people really well. And I think more so than a lot of bands, they try and do that, and that's what makes them unique and so likable. And, and like, f- technically uncool. That's, like, these right. are, like, and I don't give a shit about cool. I think being cool is, is, like, lame, which is a weird sentence, but modern baseball is not worried about appearing cool or hip or aloof or above it. Which makes them cool. Yeah, right. They they give fans what they want. Yeah. And they've talked about that. How some of their favorite bands, in an interview, they said, I think, Wonder Years or, or some punk Say band. Say anything. Some punk band from the mid-2000s is one of their favorite bands. And they were saying that, like, that band... You know, they just love the idea of, like, give your fans everything you've got. Like, that's why you're doing this. So many bands uh, from indie circles, from punk circles, are so above that, or they think they are. Right. Modern Baseball has never done that. And again, like, these, they're making some technically, like, indulgent choices on this. They're doing, they're yeah. splitting the sides. Yeah. It's a concept album in a way. Uh, it's you know, interesting. It's Something to take into account, too, is it, when you think about their core fan base, it's a lot of young people. Yeah. It's a, yeah you could argue high school through college. About it, our age and younger. We're 23. Our, and we're probably on the older side of people who listen to them. I think so. It's cool because this will be a lot of those music fans' first introduction to these, these concepts of a, a split album or themes running an entire side yeah like that's a cool introduction that modern baseball is like giving these people in their own way yeah where it's like maybe they haven't heard like a concept album before or maybe they they've never even heard of speaker box love below or know what that is they have no frame of reference they're doing this just themselves which i think is really really interesting yeah i'm i'm starting now the past couple days when i've been listening to get this feeling that Maybe this album is going it, to be a classic. Maybe I, it, like I, th- I, like we talked about when we when we first started this discussion. I was initially disappointed. I couldn't be like higher on this album right yeah. now. I honestly think it's really fucking good. So do I. I've done a heel turn. I've done. I, well, yeah. I, and here's the thing: is I don't think either of us ever thought it was bad. No, it's all enjoyable. Um, I just think we were. It, we I fell into the trap that I hate to see people do, which is I wanted something out of a band. It's not what they gave me. And I felt like disappointed, and then I had to really reassess and like just consider this as like listen to it for what it is. So before we get into what our favorite songs, and I want to ask you what your favorite side is too. Let me ask you: if you're an older music fan, yeah, you're not in your twenties at all. Is this going to be something that you will enjoy? Um, that's a good question. I think that. I mean, we listen to Stephen Hyden, who's a writer for the AV Club. And, He's 38. And, and Grant Lent. He's a 38-year-old guy, music writer. So, I mean, I guess that's his job is to understand music, understand trends, and like it. But I, I there's nothing on this that's so new, in quotes, 
that I think someone who's older like wouldn't get it. Some of the themes are relatively young, but I think they're on this album definitely more than you're gonna miss it all. They're trying to they're embracing some older themes and like some mature. I was gonna thoughts. say I was gonna say this album more so than sports or you're gonna miss it all. Definitely is a lot more mature in the songwriting and the topics that they're talking about. Absolutely. So I think where you have Bren talking about, you know, skipping class in rock bottom. Yeah. You have Bren now talking about, like, missing a loved one who is really far away. Or the idea of, like, having someone understanding what it means to be there for someone because you've had someone be there for you during... Yep. A terrible time and tell it's you on, that like they're they're proud of you and like yeah. you know you're you're facing your demons head on a, and... a great example is on what if one of my favorite lyrics on the whole album bren he's singing um now that i'm older i see what i've been ruthless ungrateful a, a, a litany of just like negative characteristics and he's really looking back at like i think this is definitely a post uh rehab type of song where like, like look at what a dick I've been mm -hmm. to just everyone who cares about me. Mm -hmm. Like I've been uncaring. I haven't. I haven't given what I've gotten from people. Exactly. And that's a, that's a mature thing. That's something you have to learn as you transition into adulthood. Yeah. And I, I think if you are an older music fan, I would say give this one a try because I think it's worth it. Like Ian Cohen, we talk about him, music writer for Pitchfork and a few other sites. He reviewed this on Pitchfork, gave it a very high score by Pitchfork standards. He's on the back half of 35 himself. Yeah. And he loves this album. Yeah. First of all, it seems like Pitchfork has a ceiling for these these uh, albums, like emo, pop punk. It's, you could not really go higher than eight. Yeah. This one got a 7.7, .7, which I think is too yeah. low. But um, yeah, and the thing is, like, I mean, age is just a, like a, a number of construct. It doesn't matter that much. Like, I like the Sun Kill Moon album he came out with a couple years ago. I know you love that. Yep. That album came out when I was 22 years old. Right. Uh, Mark Kozalik is singing about like having a bad back and like not <laughs> wanting to go to a concert because he's old. <laughs> right. And he's talking about like just being like this old dude. I don't think age, like you, you understand what's going on. I mean, I think there is more with older music listeners a tendency to dismiss younger writers of music. Agreed. Um, because the themes seem, you know, whatever, less weighty. They seem like they, they, they have no context for what really is hard about life. Um, I think the music speaks for itself. I think people enjoy this album, older or not. I would agree. I would recommend giving it a listen. So here's how I want to do this next part, Sean. I want to do our favorite songs on both sides. Okay. okay. So you go first. So on Jake's Jake's first half of the album. My, my favorite song on Jake's half is Note to Self. This song is... This is a great example of him having a more structured song. It has like a couple parts to it. It builds to the, you know, it, like where I want to be still seems a thousand miles away part. Yeah. I love that. It really builds well. One of his strongest songwriting performances on any record. Yeah. If I were to pick a second, it would be Mass, which is more of like the classic modern baseball Jake song. I think Mass is actually the closest thing you get to anything that they've done previously. So for me on Jake's side, those are like two of the ones I'm thinking of too. Um, but what I'll I'll give a shout out to is Wedding Singer. Love Wedding Singer. Um, second song on the album. It's the first like full song. Um, just really nice sounding guitars on there. Great uh, riff. Really melodic like higher end guitar line. I think if I had to pick like a favorite, I've bounced back and forth between Note to Self and Mass. I love the part in Mass where he's like, "I wish it was last summer and you were still in South, South Philly, Philly yeah. and and I was." It's what you referenced yeah. before. I wasn't in Austin, Texas. Yep. 
asking these kids what they had for breakfast. Yep. Um, second side. So on Bren's side. Oh, also really quick, I got the vinyl of this, and um, the sides are side J and side B, not at side A. And oh, side that's B. so cool. I like that. It's actually kind of cute. Yeah, it is cute. Yeah. So on Bren's side, this has been a roller coaster for yeah. me. Yeah. Because at first. I loved the single Apple Cider, I Don't Mind. That's the most immediate, I think. Yeah. And it is some of the best songwriting by him. However, my my two favorites, I think Just Another Face, the song that, that caps this off, is arguably the best song anyone in that band has ever written. This is all about Bren facing his, his issues with mental health and addiction head-on and talking about the people who were with him through it all. Really emotional and personal song with a great, like, build and melodies in it. And if I can interject on that song, it has this feeling of, like... So Bren's side, like I said, the first four songs are all two minutes or less. That one's almost four minutes. It does feel like it almost that side of the album almost captures like what he's going through. There's these like thrashing, just emotionally erratic songs. Um, they, they kind of span the gamut of different feelings and, and just they're quick. And then that feels like a very reflective. Exactly. Looking it's back like, at what he This is kind of after the storm. Like, exactly. So that I would say is my favorite. I, I need to shout out what if too, though, like that is a perfect example of a song where I thought this is too short. There's not a lot going on here. I don't love it, and then it turned into one of my favorites. Um, so I think those three that end his side are my favorites. However, Just Another Face is my number one. I would just, I'm going to lead in by saying that coding these to Lucans and breathing in stereo. <laughs> so have, all of them. So we both, mentioned all the songs. Well, they've both really grown on me. <laughs> yeah. um, but my favorite is Just Another Face. Um, and That lyric of even if you can't see it now... We're proud of what's to come, and you and you, yeah, is awesome. Just uplift on a hundred. Yeah, and it's it really a great way to end the album and to end a side that's like riddled with those types of lyrical themes. I think my my second favorite is um, probably Apple Cider. I don't mind still because um, we had a little bit of the single syndrome on these songs where every day from Jake's side and Apple Cider. I don't mind were released like kind of a while ago. I've listened to these songs a lot. Um, and sometimes when that happens, I have a hard time hearing them in the context of the record, not as singles. I think that song, Apple Cider, I Don't Mind, has my favorite overall vibe on the album, some of my favorite melodies. I think Just Another Face is inarguably the best song mm-hmm, mm-hmm. On, on that yeah. side, and probably on the album. So who who wrote your favorite side? I've, I've really flip-flopped I on have this two. so I have many two. times. Um, and it's it's damn close. It's really yeah. close. I actually think it's become Bren. I agree with you. At first, for me, I thought Jake had clearly the better side. Not anymore. Bren is the side I look forward to more. It's the one I enjoy more. Yeah, well, like today, before I came over, I wanted to get another... I wanted to listen again, uh, see if I could find any more talking points or whatever. But I, I popped on Bren's side first because like, I'll get through this quick. Right. And then I, I'll listen to Jake's side around every day because I've heard that a million times. Right. But like... I gotta be honest. I was looking more forward to to Brent's side, exactly. which is not at all to throw stones or to, to shit on what Jake. Did no, Jake's side. side is still great. It's, it's great, awesome. What I have found myself doing is I get through Brent's side, and I play Brent's side again. 
Really? Because it's so short. It's yeah. just like, oh, I want to listen to all these songs again. Interesting. I've done that, like, multiple times. Yeah. It's 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 an interesting album. Excuse me. I think it's going to be one that people uh, get a kick out of because it is, like, if, especially if you haven't listened to Modern Baseball before, um, it's, it's interesting to hear this band that's doing this thing where they have... Um, you know, a sort of a split album, and they do seem distinct. It's not like it's not like you're gonna miss it all with the songs. There's there's subtle differences, but it sounds must like the same band. The, I honestly think that the the two sides here sound very different. I do. Too. So it's gonna be interesting to see what people think. I love both sides. I do too. Brent gets the slight nod. Agreed. Let us know what you think about this album. I'm very interested to hear from yeah. listeners. So we wanted to continue with a few other albums that came out recently. We're not going to spend as much time on them as we did Modern Baseball. Because that was actually kind of longer than I thought we were going to go. I would agree. I would agree. But I, Worth it, though. They deserve it. I absolutely agree. And I, I, you know, I haven't listened to these albums that we're going to talk about quite as much. I haven't either, or... for good reason, though. So let's, let's dive into that. So let's talk about James Blake. Okay. So James Blake is like this British electronic... Self-serious. R&B, very self-serious artist who gets his balls washed by critics left and right. Yeah, so this album, it's uh, The Color in Anything. Um, so I listened to this album again today for the first time since I first heard it, which I think was over a week ago. Did you fall asleep during the middle? I didn't. I was at work. It might have been a bad look. And I will say that I liked it more this time. There, I, I, There's a lot of songs here that he's doing some nice stuff. Um, the the I Need a Forest Fire song with Justin Vernon of Bon Iver on there, I think that song is actually, it's fire, Not no pun intended. I, I agree. That's it's actually, an eye-rolling pun. To me, that is the head and shoulders, the best song on this on this record. I think this is way too long. It's it, well, it way is. too serious. James Blake has this idea that what he's doing is revolutionary. He and his like sister were on Twitter, like, patting themselves on the back for this revolutionary sound that he's created. It's like, dude, this has kind of been done before. I don't think anything he's doing is super cutting edge. It's definitely too long. And so on my listen that I had today of this album, I had a couple thoughts. One was, uh, while I'm at least liking these songs, or, or some or most of these songs... I'm not loving almost any of them. Also, it will it feels like I'll be four tracks from the end for the rest of my life because it's <laughs> it's an hour 16 minutes. It's, it's too it, long. It's interminable. I I kept I was actually laughing when more songs were coming up. I was like that has to be the end, right? Yeah. Another song, another like light little synth. Um also, the other thought I had was I was on Spotify monitoring your and other people's Spotify listening right. as I do. Um and you listen to Never Hung Over Again by Joyce Manor, uh, which is like 19 minutes long, and you listen to that full album, that excellent, awesome, fun album, <laughs> in the time it took me to listen to literally like four and a half James Blake so, songs. So, you would be a lot better served listening to Never Hung Over Again four times than you would listening to this James Blake album once. Not only did you start and finish it in the time it took me to listen to this album, you did it in the time it took me to listen to like a fifth of it. That... Is, that shouldn't happen. That's too long. It's shorter, and than, it's not shorter even, than Drake's album, Sean. That's true, but th we're not talking about Drake no, right now. Not, Don't not. shit on Drake. I'm not. I'm not. Um, it's a long album. It is a long album. Me. It's too long. And I said it's, is long. And I said it's too long. James Blake is just this like dreary, boring, fucking monolith of a, an album that everyone seems to be loving. Well, and everyone I mean by music writers seem to love. Yeah. 
I so like there are things that I'm enjoying here and there on it. It has like it's boring. Yeah, it's boring. Yeah, right. I understand you're bored by it. I am too by much of it. I do like James Blake's voice. I know you don't. I like it's the, this sing-songy, whiny, like drawl. Like I, I kind of like the tone of it. I talk like this. That's a pretty damn good impression. I did like him on. <laughs> I did like him on Lemonade, though. Yeah, Forward. you know, you know why? Because you got like sixty seconds of him. Not, That's about all I can stomach. Not a hundred James Blake minutes. Yeah. No, I so I'm he's not, the definition of just white person electronic indie. Yeah. That is just so boring. So boring to me. It's not It's not my cup of tea either, and I'm not defending it. I'm just saying that I didn't hate it when I listened. I, I don't love it. I, 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 don't, yeah. I don't even really like I'm it. I'm being a little hard on it. Like, honestly, I'm playing it up just because I'm so sick of the the critical acclaim it's getting for no reason. It I, does, don't, I don't know why. It does feel like a lot of hype. Um, it feels I've like, never, and here's the thing, dude. I've never been on the James Blake. I haven't train. either. Like even going back to that album, the first one he released that had like Wilhelm scream. Yeah, and uh, is that the one that's um, there's a limit to your love? Or yeah, that song yeah. called "Limit to Your Love." Yeah. Um, and uh, and that one, my brother and my sister, yeah. don't speak to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's that for six minutes. But I don't blame them. <laughs> uh, there's there's some good stuff. On that, but like when I listened to it, I was like, "Why is this getting like nines out of ten from know. everybody?" So this is what it feels like to me. Is I'm gonna blow my nose. I'm sorry, listeners. Is before anyone has even heard the album, yeah, they're saying uh, nine out of ten, nine and a half out of ten. Before they've even heard it, they're like, "It's James Blake. We're gonna, we're gonna give it to him." It feels weighty and important, so we're just gonna give him the high grade. When, in your defense, on on the Drake uh, thing, a lot of the criticism was that it was too long. I think that it was like more engaging of an album for its length than this yes. James Blake album. And you didn't hear and a people, fucking peep about this being too long. No, people shit all over. They want Drake. more. They're like, I wish it was three hours long. Yeah, oh, seriously. If you want to, if you have to kill an afternoon, pop James Blake's new album on or twice. Or if you're an insomniac, um, pop this on. You'll be out in ten minutes. These are nice hot takes. These are out the oven takes from Sean. They are. I'm loving uh, it. Alright, so let's talk about another album that I have some hot takes on. Is this Anony album. Is it Anony? Anoni? Anoni? Anohi? I don't really know how to pronounce it. Yeah, I'm not sure. Anyways, this album is called, what is it, Harmfulness? Harmful? Helplessness? Helplessness. Is it Helplessness? It's all caps, first of all. Big it is, time it is Helplessness. for me. Yeah, it is Helplessness. So actually, we're getting a lot of, so we have Goodness by the Hotel Year coming out soon. We got Hopelessness. We had Harmlessness by The World is a Beautiful Place That's last right. year. I'm getting these all confused. So anyways, Hopelessness by Anohi and I think Honey. It's, I think it's Anony. Anony? Something okay. like that. So this is an album by a transgender, like, electronic kind of avant-garde pop yeah. artist. Um, so I remember when Four Degrees, the lead single, came out back in December. I loved that song. I was like, whoa, there's some cool stuff happening here. Nice message on this, too, about global warming. Um, I was like, this is this is cool stuff. This is, like, important stuff. I'm excited for this album to come out. As the reviews were trickling in, it was getting very, very high scores. I was excited. I was like, this is going to be good stuff. Got absolutely, like, praised on high by Pitchfork. It did. Best New Music got, like, like a, a nine. nine? Yeah. I think it got a nine. So I finally start listening. And the first two tracks are Drone Bomb Me is Drone a cool Bomb Me is a good song. And then you get four degrees. I'm like, I'm loving this so far. Yeah. And then you get into the meat of the album. You get into songs like Obama. And you get into songs like 
I don't even know. Violent man, I don't love you anymore, execution. And all of this, all the political messages in this start to feel really heavy-handed, especially on a song like Obama. They're not subtle. They're not subtle, to say the least. And I got a little tired of this. So this is what happened to me from a musical standpoint, is that the first listen through on this album, I actually like... I had a more immediate reaction to this record than I usually do. I was like, oh, I really liked that. I can't, I'm excited to listen again. Um, on second listen, I don't know if I was in the wrong mood or what, but everything was wrong with this album on my second listen. Uh, Anony's voice was annoying me because her delivery, kind of a little bit of a grating vocal delivery in my opinion. Yeah. A little bit like over-the-top theatrical maybe. Yeah. Um, just not my favorite type of vocal delivery. Um, and just like you said, I mean, maybe it was you in my ear or maybe it was some of the stuff I saw about the overt, really he- like heavy-handed political messaging, which I think is all important and good, so but it doesn't make it subtle and it doesn't make it the most interesting way that, that he could have, or she rather, could have brought it out. That's what I wanted to bring up is one of the praises of this album is the fact that it's talking about a lot of these topics that no one else seems to really be talking about. And I get that. I think it is important to talk about global warming. I think it is important to talk about drones and our treatment of you know, our, the U.S.'s foreign policy and things like that. I think that's all really, really important. However, does just talking about that make an album or piece of art good? Or do you need to do it with some kind of finesse or subtlety? I guess it depends. I mean, because you have like political songs dating back to say Bob Dylan, like Masters of War is pretty overt, pretty over the top. Um, It just, I think really in terms of like, it's so subjective when you're talking about what makes it good. Um, And to me, I, what I actually enjoyed initially about this album was some of the production, the sounds going on here. I I wasn't like bowled over by the political Mm, messaging. Right. I did. I did like the other day though, um, Anony released, and I hope I'm pronouncing her name right like an open letter to fans and it was about how I, I remember I saw this on Twitter it said the US government is lying to you well the one I saw <laughs> it was like it was like you're being used right but but the point she made was well taken because um, there's this whole big debate right now about like transgender individuals using bathrooms and stuff and her whole message was look like politicians want this to be the message right now because it makes you ignore like issues that actually matter and she and she was like they did this in the 80s with reagan and gay people like it's these are just wedge issues that make you ignore what politicians like really want to do or like what's really going on and like i understand those kinds of messages are a little over the top it's kind of a lot to hear especially from like a musician I think a lot of times people are grow tired of musicians making points like that but i went into i clicked on it on twitter fully expecting to make like more fuel for the fire of me being like this is too much it was well written and it it was actually a really well taken point so and that that's my thing i this is all important stuff to talk about yeah when you're listening to a 50 minute album and you're just getting beat over the head with it over and over it gets a little tiring yeah for sure and that's that's really my issue with it is if it wasn't so over the top if it was a little more subtle I think I would like spending time with this album more because the music itself, the sounds itself, for the most part, I liked. We're cool. They're really nice. S- some of it, you know, it's not my favorite type of music, but I enjoyed it for for what it is. I don't know. Something about this album just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I'm in the same boat. And now what I've done is I've kind of like dug myself into this hole of being against it. 
right. where I don't know if I'm really going to change my mind. But see, this is another album to me, much like James Blake, that maybe doesn't deserve as much critical acclaim as it's getting. For me, the thing, like I said, it was just like I couldn't take the vocals on this the second time through. I was just, yeah. I don't know if I was in the wrong place. Sometimes it is all about the context of when you listen. Like sometimes you'll be really receptive. Sometimes if you're in the wrong mood, wrong part of the day, you're tired. It, it was a little grating to me that second time, yeah. and it was weird. I, I just didn't feel that the first time. It's interesting how you can sort of... I can do complete heel turns on, on albums yeah. like from one listen yeah. to the next. Yeah, I mean, so I would like to hear from some other people on if they've listened to this, what they think. Absolutely. Um, I'd be really interested to know, because it seems like a lot of people are just praising this album, mm-hmm. which understandably so, but also I think it's okay to question music writer twitter oh and in the, the critical group and, think that in critical group think which i think absolutely happens with james blake and this album in particular it happens it's, with it's most okay al- to go against that it happens with most albums right like most critically acclaimed or critically panned albums there's usually like one or two sort of outlier reviews that are way the other way usually that's clickbait but a lot of times <laughs> um a lot of times like there's this thing that happens where music you know this is, I think, I imagine, like, kind of a somewhat tightly knit group of people, the, the yeah. music critic, they're all following each other on Twitter, on social media, and a group think happens. Like, you yeah. see how someone reviews an album, and are you likely to go out on a limb and maybe look stupid if you love it Absolutely when someone not. else doesn't, yep. or to nope. hate it when everyone nope. else is loving it? Because then you look like you don't get it. Right. That hap- I think that happens all the time. It does. It does. Because the truth of the matter is it's all subjective. <laughs> I know. Like, I know. It, you could love this album if it got shit reviews or, right. or vice versa. That's right. Let's jump to another album, Sean. So Chance the Rapper came out with his third mixtape on Friday. This one... Coloring Book. Called Coloring Book. This one had a lot of hype for it because yeah. Chance blew up from being on The Life of Pablo from Kanye. He sure did. I wrote a blog post about this, and we discussed it on our Kanye West, The Life of Pablo breakdown pod. Um, but I wrote like a blog post way back when, February, whenever that came out, about how I thought Chance the Rapper was the winner of that album. He stole the show. He stole the show. He like kept uh, Waves on there. He fought for Waves' inclusion. He also was a big part of Ultra Light Beams, had the best verse, in my opinion, on that album. So yeah, I think the hype was an all-time high for, for a Chance mixtape. So what you got on this album was a gospel album in the same vein as songs like Ultra Light Beam were. So he, he took th- that similar sound and theme from Life of Pablo and he blew it up into like a entire gospel album. And I have to say, of the three albums we've talked about that aren't modern baseballs, so far this is my favorite of the of, of I, James Blake, and New York Chance. I would agree. I like Chance's new album like significantly more than those. I do too. And a lot. It's really good. So this is, of the three we just talked about, this one is also getting tons of critical acclaim. I think this one's very much deserved. I agree. I just love like Chance the Rapper's voice. He's a cool rapping delivery and a cool just the quality of his voice mm-hmm. goes a long way for me. It does. Um, it's unique. It actually is like where because that can make a big difference with rappers. Like for example, I think Vince Staples' voice is a little bit kind of blah sometimes, mm-hmm. which is why maybe I didn't love that album mm-hmm. last year as much as everybody uh, else seemed to. Um, but I think the voice of a rapper has more. Uh, it's more important than I think people give it credit. Dude, like Pusha T, yeah, has an awesome rapping. He's voice. a cool voice. Yeah, like, I think that I think Snoop Dogg survived on his voice alone <laughs> right. for a long time. And copious amounts of weed. Yeah, and like becoming Snoop Lion. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so one of the things I wanted to talk about with this one is the religious nature of it. So yes. it seems like 
what happens with reception or critical reception of religious albums seems to differ yeah. depending on the type of music that it is. So, you, you know, you talk about something like Christian rock or even indie rock that references religion in it. Um, that seems to be different than how a rap album with lots of themes of religion or gospel is received. I was thinking about this earlier um, as I was listening through, and a lot of what people are writing about this Chance the Rapper mixtape is that it's a gospel album. That's what you see. That's like the clip from every review. Chance releases a gospel, whatever, masterpiece, blah, blah, blah. Um, And it was just interesting to me that for rap and like R&B, this seems to be a cultural touchstone and it's appreciated by critics, by fans. I mean, like non-religious people. Um, And it does seem that like, it's interesting in the rock communities, like you said, like I would never seek out like a Christian rock album. Um, it's just an interesting standard, and it's. I wonder. Yeah, it seems like Christian rock. It's okay to make fun of that. Is it because, which is what I think, is it because rappers and people uh, in th- those genres making sort of gospel music, um, is it that it, they're just doing more interesting things musically? I think that's a big part of it. I w- yeah, because what Chance is doing here and what Kanye was doing on Life of Pablo is infinitely more interesting than. Some switch foot, yeah. Then some white dude like singing about God in like thinly veiled ways. But it's interesting because I was thinking about this earlier and I was like, I hear a black person rap about God and I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. I hear a white dude sing about God and I'm like, ooh, he maybe sneakily has like Kool Aid, cyanide laced Kool Aid around the corner. Yeah, and it's weird that that's the mindset. And I think. One of the reasons why it's so well-received critically is, especially like gospel music, it, this kind of dates back to like slavery where these types of songs and this culture was very much a part of their lives and it's kind of carried over throughout the years and ends up influencing modern-day music. Yeah, and what it comes across as is like celebratory right. and fun. Right. And, I th- and it just seems like... Christian rock comes across as holier than thou, austere, yeah, austere. And like yeah, super serious and and holier than thou and sort of preachy. V- yes, that's the thing yes. is like I never get the impression. I think that's a key distinction is that when I'm listening to Chance the Rapper rap or sing about God or when Kanye does, it doesn't feel like it's like them telling me how I should feel. Yeah. But may, I don't know. Maybe that's because I'm white. I was raised religious and am no longer and like it, and when I see a Christian rock band, I react negatively negatively right. to that because it's like so akin to like what I was raised in or whatever, or what I think of as being sort of oppressive. I don't know. Maybe I it, it's, it's. I think there's a lot. I, that's the feeling I get too. When I'm listening, it just feels different. The way that they're talking about it feels different. You're right. It does sound fun and celebratory, and like this is a very positive influence in their life. When we talk about you know Christian rock. It does seem very preachy, and it seems a little brainwashy, where it's like, come drink the Kool-Aid. Yeah, it feels a little bit Old Testament, God. Yeah, that's You're right. That's right. And it's like, we were meant to live for so much more. It's like, oh, this has some, oh. like, uh, And then yeah. you hear a chance on Life of Pablo, and he's like, this little light of mine, I'm going yeah, to shine. Yeah. It's a different vibe. <laughs> right. I don't right. know. It's just, it's like, I, I, 
I hope this isn't veering towards anything racist. I don't want anything like That's, yeah. that to be a part of the discussion. No. Because it's not. No. I just like, because if anything, I dislike like white music that is religious a lot. <laughs> right, right. I don't know. Right. It's just a weird standard to me. Yeah. And it's an interesting, I just thought as like a, a part of what is the, the story of this album, um, it's an interesting thing to think about. It is, and that's that's... I don't want the point to get lost. It's basically that it seems there's a different way that people talk about albums like this, and there's a different way that people talk about like a Christian rock album or something like that. And different ways I listen to them. Exactly, yeah. and enjoy them. So it's it, it is interesting, and that's that was one of the big takeaways from this this Chance the Rapper experience for me. Um, Some wanna, quick hits. Wanna, here? Yeah, let's wrap up with a few with a few quick hits. Well, so, I'll just take them one by one. Yeah. So I'll start with K Tronada. Uh, spelled all caps, K-A-Y-T-R-A-N-A-D-A. I don't like like the all caps. I'm not a fan of all caps. Cut it out, Kate Renata. We gotta, dude, it's like, we gotta take it. It's becoming like this trend. I know. Um, And, you know, not everyone is obsessed with, like, proper, (laughs) like, casing. Right. Which I am. Uh, But Kate Renata is a uh, sort of a hip-hop producer, uh, makes electronic beats. Um, This album's called 99.9%. I've been really enjoying it. Uh, Sean, quick thoughts? It's good. It's good. It's music that I didn't necessarily think I would enjoy as much as I did. Yeah. And I was shocked. This is like an hour-long album. Yeah. I was shocked at how like fast it felt. To me, it's like a slightly more accessible Flying Lotus. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I was loving Fly Low, and so this this fell right into, yep. into that wheelhouse. Another one that I've been loving, Juliana Barwick, her new album. So this is, she's like an ambient... Atmospheric. Atmospheric, I guess, singer. She doesn't do a lot of, like, word singing. It's just a lot of, like, noises and things like that. Really nice album to listen to while you're just trying to relax or you're trying to, like, work or focus on something else. I went back and I listened to some of her other stuff, um, her 2013 or 14 album, 2013, uh, Nepenthe, and that's really good, too. Check out Juliana Barwick if you want some some ambient, atmospheric this, stuff. This kind of album is so in my wheelhouse, yeah. it's not even funny, which reminds me to give a tiny, tiny quick shout to the new Brian Eno album, which I'm sure will make friend of the pod Ian happy. That's right, big I don't friend know if he's of the pod. to it yet, big friend of the pod. The Ship, really interesting. I love ambient music. I don't think we talk about it enough, but I think people would might fall asleep if we talked about yeah, ambient music too much. I would agree. We're going to go to the other end of the spectrum now, Sean. <laughs> We're going to go to what is the opposite of ambient music, right. and that is the punk, aggressive rap that is Death Grips. <laughs> so Death Grips is, okay, first of, first of all, all, they're funny. First, the name Death Grips is so fitting for the music that they create. Without a doubt. Like, you put this record on, and the first song is just one of the most grating aggressive songs they've ever done. The second song, I think, is even more so. Just, it kicks off that album. You're like, oh, I, oh, Death Grips. This is what you're going to get. I was thinking earlier about the fact that Death Grips is, like, sneakily the most punk band going right now. And they're a rap, technically, like, a rap right. band. But it's such a different sound what they do because the producer in the band, Zach something, I don't remember his name, the guy who makes the beats... Like, he samples these intense drums and mm. a lot of times really just grating, distorted sounds. Mm-hmm. And then MC Ride, which I think yeah. his name, the rapper, kind of just screams. Yeah, uh, he's just barking at you. Muffled screams into his mic. Um, Death Grips has been on a tear of releasing material. They put out um, uh, The Money Store, which is now my love. Oh, that's... If you've heard Death Grips, that's probably what you've heard by them. It was I think it's their most accessible. You've probably heard... I've seen footage or get got... 
um, from that album. But ever since then, they've I think they have like eight albums. They put out like two albums a year. They're like the Creedence Clearwater Revival of, of this era. Hopefully, <laughs> that's that's a comparison that's never been made. It certainly has. Grips and CCR. Well, CCR released three albums, Sean, in 1968, 69, one of those years. That's what I meant. Uh, right. Definitely not sonically similar in <laughs> no, any way. No. Although, I would pay money to hear a John Fogarty spit over a Death Grips beat. I would too. That would be huge. This yeah. is an album worth checking out. It is. So, I actually haven't listened to anything by them since the Money Store came out. Yeah. This, from what I understand, and actually it makes sense when I listen, is the most accessible thing they've done since The Money Store. As aggressive as those first couple songs are, it levels out and gets a little bit easier to listen to as you go along. Almost feels a little bit like Death Grips making sure the audience like knows what the fuck they're like. We're still Death Grips. We're still gonna like make your ears maybe bleed. Yeah, and it's like it's a lot to listen to. You it's not an album that I can listen to a ton. I have to be in like the right mood or like need to listen to it because say I need to talk about it on a podcast (laughs) but I do really like Death Grips and they're one of these bands where like you hate to say it but I think a lot of people like Death Grips more in in theory than they do in in truth because of what they represent and what they're all about and the energy they bring and like the cool style they have Um, but I actually am really enjoying this album yeah it's good let's jump to another so yep uh, I think this is the last one that we have. Yes. It is Pity Sex. So this is... White Hot Moon. White Hot Moon, their second album. This is a band that probably not a lot of people have heard of. Maybe not. Here and there. They're they're like a a punk sort of emo, but they're... I they don't, they I don't, sort of sound to me, as I was listening to this album, like a poppier version of, like, My Bloody Valentine. Yeah, yes. It's yeah. a little shoegazy. It is. It's, like, very distorted guitars, layered, and singers that are, like, they sing in sort of... It's very melodic, but that's, the singers are a little deadpan. You know what? That's a great point, and I was... So this album more so is a lot more in that shoegaze vibe than their first one was, actually. Yeah. There were certain songs that did have that vibe, but they were definitely more in that punkish area. This one, you're right, actually, is very... It, it does trend into that shoegaze. Good melodies on here, some really catchy songs. It's a quick listen. It's just in the 30-ish minute range. Didn't do amazingly critically, which I'm... I mean, I guess it's nothing groundbreaking, no, if that's yeah. what critics want, but I've enjoyed this album I've a lot. I've really enjoyed it. Like, honestly, I would rather listen to this Pity Sex record over Death Grips, K. Trinata, James Blake, like, almost any of the other ones that we talked about. It's easy to listen to. That's the thing. It's... It's in that rock wheelhouse. Right. And that's it's like going to be very accessible for people. And that usually ends up being not what critics want so much. Exactly. It's just this easy exactly. album. Exactly. But I've been enjoying it. Like you said, melodies are are sweet. I, yeah, I've been revisiting a lot. So, you know, if you just if you like that type of music, I would recommend checking it out. So, how do we do for time? We we swore we vowed to come in under time. I don't know. I think that modern baseball talk probably put us over the top. But and then th- me just not, Do you think we're at an hour and a half? God, no. Okay. No, no, I think it's probably about, maybe a little over an hour. Well, we'll know in a minute, and the listeners will know. They'll know. But we wanted to say really quick, um, give us a follow on Twitter, at Level4 underscore media. Let us know what you think of the podcast. Let us know what you think of these albums. Let us know what you think of Radiohead or of Drake or yeah, anything. Yeah, and also, thank you for anyone who listened to the Radiohead pod. That's among our most listened to episode of all time. Yeah. So, thank R- you. Racked up 500 listens since last week, which is, um, you know, not a lot by any standard for podcasts, but for, I don't know, I'm proud of it. I it feels like a lot. I am too. And I don't know what high percentage of it is people accidentally clicking, but I'm going to pretend that that doesn't I'm going to pretend they listened all the way through. Yeah, 
me too, which is unlikely yeah. for even like our most devoted of fans. <laughs> I know. Um, and uh, check out our website, level4media.net, <coughs> not .org, as I think we erroneously said last week. Um, and uh, yeah, check out the other podcasts. You can subscribe on iTunes. You can um, follow us on Stitcher, and you can give us a follow on SoundCloud. Um, is that it? That's it. See you next week. Thanks, everybody. fire all day james bonfire <laughs> yeah dude yeah office reference yeah i know michael scott it wasn't funny well the episode was and yeah you saying it that joke wasn't was funny. Okay. um but no starting off with a kind of a just a mean way to go <laughs> no my jeans have smelled like fire all day i need to air these out because as you know i've only washed these jeans twice now now as the, the bream team knows i've only washed these jeans twice since i've gotten them where did you get them like September. Really? Yeah. They do yeah. say not to wash your jeans too much. That's right. You don't need to. You right. don't need to. I air them out and stuff. R- where? Like outside. You like hang them up on a line? I like get a hanger and hang it from our like canopy thing on the porch. Okay. Yeah. yeah I didn't know if you had like a... I don't have like a, <laughs> a fucking clothesline. I, I, I'm just... I like clotheslines. I'm, I was, there was no When shot. have you... In what context have you like seen a clothesline in the year... In, in the 21st century? Well, in the 20th century, I saw one. Exactly. It, at my house. Exactly. We, my mom had it's one. It's a 20th century construct. Yeah, but it was like 1997. That... Pff, might as well be 1917. Well, actually, in 500 years, people will think that way. You're right. See, yeah, we talked about this. This is, a, this is an interesting thing. We talked thing. about this because... We don't think there's any difference between how people dressed in the year 1300 for, and 1200. Yeah, for example, I'm actually glad that we're on a hot mic for this because, say, like, can you tell me the differences between the peop- the way people dressed in 1680 versus 1615? I cannot. And that's a lot, of, a lot of time. That's a long time. That's basically the difference between people dressing in 1980 and 1915. We, we would say, oh, big difference. Yeah. Even the 1915 one, I'm a little hazy about what it looks like. I would honestly be like, you know what? People probably dressed the same in 1915 as they did in 1615. See, that's not true. But if you were to like... <laughs> that's what to, history will tell us. Yeah, but I, you could easily fool me. You could be like, yeah. mar- match the clothing outfit, that's not what you call it, to the, the era. And I would screw that test all up. You know what we should do is we should come up with a fun game that we can sell to like textbook companies like McGraw-Hill or... Prentice Hall. Sell it to them and be like, "Hey, we have Rutledge. this. We have this great clothing matching game for you. It'll really teach the kids about garb and and wears in certain time frames. Yeah, and um, and garments. And right. and and also the the thing is, is like this way people won't mix up what people wore because that's really important to know. It's it's crucial. Um, it could make or break you as a as like a successful human. But it is interesting to think about the fact that. 
you could feel like in theory people could like 500 600 years from now be like oh yeah the ipod wasn't that invented in like 1910 yeah that's right that wouldn't seem that crazy like or or wasn't that invented in 1945 to us that seems obscene they'll be like oh yeah close enough sure it was it's within a like general range Mm -hmm. and interesting to think about food for thought dude they'll probably say the same thing about the car they'll be like yeah the car 19 90? People estimate all over the, the map. People be as like, long oh, as you're within 100 yeah. years, like, you're close enough. Yeah, that's it's good That's going to happen. Yeah, this is good. This is like a little philo- philosophy bites segment. Yeah, I like this. It's not this. really about philosophy, more about history. Yeah, I like this. Uh, that was good. History bites. That was good. You want? You ready to get started? Yeah. Okay. I'm, I mean, I'm kind of freaked out, but yeah. Okay, you're going to need to reel it in then. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> all right. <clears throat> get those out. Three. Two, one.